In Exodus 20, verses 1 through 17, it says, And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt and out of the house of slavery. You have no other gods. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make yourself a carved image or anything in that likeness that is in heaven above or in the earth beneath or that is in the water under the earth. You shall not bow down to them or serve them, for I, the Lord your God, am a jealous God, visiting the iniquities of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation of those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. You shall not take the name of the Lord your God in vain, for the Lord will not hold him guiltless who takes his name in vain. Remember the Sabbath day to keep it holy. The six days you shall labor and do all your work. But the seventh day is Sabbath to the Lord our God, and on it you shall not do any work. You or your son or your daughters or your male servant or your female servant, your livestock or the sojourner who is within your gates. For in the sixth day the Lord made the heaven and the earth and the sea and all that is in them rested on the seventh day. Therefore the Lord blessed the seventh day and made it holy. Honor your father and your mother, that your days may be long in the land of the Lord your God has given you. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. You shall not covet your neighbor's house, and you shall not covet your neighbor's wife or his male servant, his female servant, or his ox, or his donkey, or anything that is your neighbor's. Going to be in Exodus 19 and 20 this morning for a few minutes. Jeff read uh, from Exodus 20 there something you might be familiar with, the Ten Commandments. We're actually going to start in Exodus 19. Exodus 19:1 through the end of Exodus 20, we'll be looking at this morning. And really, what we're talking about this morning is living holy. Live holy. If you like titles, that's the title. Live holy. Some of you are going. What does it mean to be holy? Got a pair of jeans that are holy. What does that mean? And it's, of course, it's a very religious-sounding word, and it ought to be a religious-sounding word. Uh, but, but although it has religious sort of connotations to it, it feels very churchy. Uh, it's not really that uh, fancy of a word. Really, you can think about it this way. Holy just means something set apart and reserved for special use. Uh, if a table is reserved at a restaurant, it's set aside. It's made holy for whoever has reserved it. And so holiness here, as we're going to talk about, is just... Uh, people who have intentionally, because of God's work and His uh, revealing Himself uh, to them, have said, you know, I'm going to be set apart for God Himself. And I want to look at a couple of different ways that we learn about this in uh, Exodus uh, chapter 19. Where we are at in Exodus, people have left Egypt. They've been freed from Egypt by God's power. They've crossed the Red Sea. They've wandered about in the wilderness uh, for a few months. God has saved them from running out of water. He saved them from running out of food. He saved them from running out of more water. And uh, he has saved them from the invasion of the Amalekites. Um, And now they find themselves coming to Mount Sinai, the mountain of God where God is going to make known himself to the people of Israel. And he's also going to give them a covenant, a promise. He's going to give them a promise. So look at Exodus 19, 1 through 7. I'm going to read it. I know we just got done reading a little bit there. We're going to read some more. It is pouring down rain. I thank the Lord for that. You? Because I was going to mow. And uh, sorry, you're going to have to sit home and watch the masters. Yeah, okay, that's right. Okay. Thank the Lord for the rain. Okay, back to on topic. Exodus 19, beginning in verse 1. On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt, three months, on that day they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They set out from Rephidim, and they came into the wilderness of Sinai. They encamped in the wilderness, and there Israel encamped before the mountain, and while Moses went up to God, and the Lord called out to him out of the mountain, and he said this, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, You tell the people of Israel, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians, and how I bore you on eagles' wings and brought you to myself. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, 
You shall be my treasured possession among all peoples. For all the earth is mine, and you shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. There's that word there. Holy nation, reserved for me, set apart for me. These are the words you shall speak to the people of Israel. And then Moses called to himself the elders and all the people. So here we go. Live holy because of God's promise. Live holy because of God's promise. He has made a promise to them. I've taken you out of Egypt, and I've carried you like people carried on eagles' wings. And now because of this promise I've made to you, I would like you to live holy. Maybe you can think about it this way. Uh, there are these singing competitions on uh, television. Have you seen like American Idol? Um, which is a strange reference when we have the Ten Commandments. American Idolatry, whatever you want to call it. Um, the Voice. Are there are other ones. I don't know. I, those are the only two I'm familiar with. And so what happens is you, uh, you get up and you sing. Not you. Some people get up and sing. And, uh, and then some people make it through and some people don't. And the people with really good voices allegedly make it through. And the people who don't have good voices don't. And so you might have, there might be a scene like this. they got 20 contestants on the stage, and they say, okay, uh, Jimbo, Betty Sue, uh, Tommy, and all, you step forward, and everybody else stay where you are, and then they'll say, all of those who stepped forward, you're safe. You're making it to the next round. Oh, yay, and they get all excited. And you're acting like you haven't seen them, because you don't know if, like, I don't know what you're talking about. I was reading my Bible, please. Um, I get all excited, but then they give them a challenge. They say, listen, you've made it to the next round, but now you've really entered the intensity. Now you're really going to have to step up your game because now to stay in the competition, you're going to have to do even better than you have done before. You, you think you're safe, but now you're going to have to do better than ever. And this is a little bit of the message the people of Israel are getting here. God is saying, I've redeemed you out of Egypt. I've saved you out of slavery. I've brought you out of the Red Sea. I've brought you out of the wilderness. I've held, I have overcome for you everything. And now I want you to live holy because of this promise that I have made to you. What we discover about the people of God here is God was not merely trying to get them out of Egypt because it was a bad situation. Something bigger happened at the Red Sea than Israel merely escaping the Egyptians. You remember the Red Sea? The Egyptians were going to kill them, and God split the Red Sea, and they passed through on dry land. We're tempted to think that was a big deal because they escaped the Egyptians. And what God is saying here is, that's not why I saved you. I brought you through the Red Sea because now you are my people. Look at verse 5 and 6. Well, I should say just verse 6 at this point. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. I have brought you through the Red Sea, God is saying, to bring you to me. I brought you through the Red Sea not to save your skin, not to save your necks. I brought you through the Red Sea to bring you to myself and to make you a holy nation. People who relate to God are priests. People who go to God are priests. So he says, I want you to be a kingdom of people who relate directly with me, God himself. I brought you through the Red Sea to be my people. And this is my covenant to you. Look at verse 5 now. Now, therefore, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant... You shall be my treasured possession among the peoples, for all the earth is mine. Now look here. Do you see that big gigantic word? It's only two letters in there. What is it? If. Look again. If you will obey my covenant. If you will obey my voice. Just maybe you've read Exodus before. You've been here for some of these messages. How are they doing so far? This is a big if, isn't it? If you will do that one thing which so far you have really been lousy at, then I, you will be my covenant possession. You will be my people, a kingdom of priests. Immediately what we're discovering here in Exodus 19 is the people of Israel are going to be in the back of their mind going, uh-oh, we got a problem. He has called us to the Red Sea to be a holy people, and he has called us to relate to him by nature of our obedience 
There is one thing we are not good at. Obedience. It would be easier if God would call us to do those things he want, we want to do, because then I could do it all the time. The problem is God calls us to be set apart unto Him, and His ways are different than our ways. The problem is, He says, live holy because I have made you a promise. If you obey me, you will be my people. If you obey me, I will hold on to you. If you obey me, you will be holy. And what is their response? Houston, we have a problem. And there is going to be a significant problem. Okay, let's turn to the New Testament to look at this just for a moment before we get back to the Ten Commandments. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. 1 Peter chapter 2, verses 4 through 10. I'm going to read them. They're up on the screen, or you can follow along in your copy of the Scripture. Peter is talking here about Jesus, and he relates it to this actually this passage that we're in. This is what it says in 1 Peter chapter, four, chapter 2, Beginning in verse 4, as you come to him, that is Christ, a living stone rejected by men, but in the sight of God chosen and precious, you yourselves like living stones are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood to offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God through Jesus Christ. Now let's just pause there for a minute. Very similar language to what God was telling the people of Israel in Exodus 19. I want you to be my holy priesthood, and how do they do it? If you obey, right? And what are you all saying like they were saying? That's a problem. Now Jesus comes to us as a different kind of covenant, a new covenant, and look what it says. It's a little different. He says, you are being built up as a spiritual house to be a holy priesthood. Same thing, isn't it? Do we need to be holy? Yes. Okay, the answer is yes. Some of you are on the fence on that. That's kind of, we're in church. Say yes when asked if you're supposed to be holy. You say, oh, I thought the answer was Jesus. And that, that's the next question. <laughs> Offer spiritual sacrifices acceptable to God. How? Through Jesus. See, there, do you see the change there? Exodus 19. If you will obey you will be a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. How do they do? Read the rest of the Old Testament. How do they do? Not uh, real great, uh, but don't get too high on the hog there. You wouldn't do any better. So God, as was his plan, says, I've got an idea. How about if I make you a holy priesthood acceptable not by your obedience, but instead acceptable through Christ's obedience? Now instead of saying, uh-oh, we say, okay, I, that sounds... That sounds like a plan I can work with, doesn't it? Now, I can be a part of the holy priesthood, a holy nation, but instead of it depending on my awesomeness, it depends on his awesomeness. Let's keep reading. Verse 6, for it stands in Scripture, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a cornerstone chosen and precious. Whoever believes in him will not be put to shame. So the honor is for you who believe but for those who do not believe, it says this, the stone that the builders rejected has become the cornerstone, a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. How is Jesus a stone of stumbling? Because in the back of our mind, we are convinced, well, certainly I have to be good. Okay, Jesus, yes, he died on the cross, he rose from the dead, it's awesome, but certainly I need to do my part. God reaches down halfway from heaven. I need to reach up to him. I need to do my bit. And we stumble over it. Well, well, God saves those. God helps those who help themselves. Cleanliness is next to godliness. Are these even in the Bible? I don't even think so. No. And so what we, we this stumbling block is we're convinced that we have to impress God for him to be nice to us. We're convinced of this. So think of the last time you sinned really bad. Now, for most of you, it was months ago. I know. It wasn't Friday, certainly. And then something bad happened. You lost your job. You got sick. You stubbed your toe. The dog bit you. I don't know what. No, okay, God, you got me back. All right, you're right. You're right. I've got to be good in order for you to be nice to me. Right? Do you ever do that in your head? None of you? Okay. The Bible says if we believe Christ, what are we? 
a holy priesthood, set apart unto God, not based on our own obedience, but rather based on Christ's obedience. Okay, let's finish 2 Peter chapter 4. I'm reading in verse 8, a stone of offense. The stu- they stumble because they disobey the word as they were destined to do. Verse 9, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Doesn't that sound like coming out of Egypt? We come out of slavery to sin, into slavery to Christ, into his marvelous light, and we get to remain there not because we are obedient. We get to remain there because he is obedient. Once you were not a people, now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have received mercy. What we're learning in Exodus chapter 19 is God wants his people to be set apart and holy to him. And what we're going to learn throughout all of the Old Testament is we cannot get there on our own. He says to the people of Mount Sinai, if you will obey me, you will be my people. They will not obey him, and neither do we. The only way we can be his people is if he moves in such a way we are made holy by the work of Christ. So our identity, when we put our faith in Christ, is holy, is righteous, is his. We are identified as children of the king by virtue of his grace and by our faith. We trust him and we become holy and we can live in that holiness and then we worship him by seeking to live in that idea, identity. Live holy because of his promise. Because of his promise. Okay, back to Exodus chapter 19. Look at verse 8 with me. Live holy because of his promise. So holiness in our life is a result of what God has done for us to better our position because of the work of Christ. We put our faith in Christ and we receive holiness Because Christ died on the cross, and he says, when you believe me, you get made holy, you get made righteous. But our holiness is also intended to benefit God. We worship God, we recognize who God is by living our lives in accordance with the holiness he has given us. So we live holy, the second part of this, is for the one true God. Look at Exodus 19, uh, 8 through the end of the uh, chapter. Um, I'm hesitant Can you handle it? Can I read it? Yeah, the people who were awake said yes. All right. (laughs) Moses called the people and he set before him. This is verse 8 of Exodus 19. All the people, he said, um, I misread it. Uh, Moses came and called the elders of the people and he set before them all these words that God had commanded him. And all the people answered together and said, all that the Lord has spoken, we will do. Don't laugh. If you read, don't laugh. They're trying. They're doing the best they can, okay? Moses reported the words of the people to the Lord, and because he's more gracious than you and me, he also didn't laugh. And the Lord said to Moses, Behold, I am coming to you in a thick cloud, and the people may uh, hear me speak to you. They may also believe you forever. And when Moses told the words of the people to the Lord, the Lord said this to Moses, Go to the people and consecrate them today and tomorrow. Let them wash their clothes And be ready for the third day. On the third day, the Lord will come down on Mount Sinai in the sight of all the people. Verse 12, you shall set limits for the people all around saying, take care not to go up into the mountain and don't even touch the edge of it. Whoever touches the mountain will be put to death. No hand shall touch him, but he should be stoned or shot. Whether beast or man, he should not live. When the, excuse me, when the trumpet sounds a long blast, they shall come up to the mountain. So Moses went down from the mountain, he told the people, uh, and consecrated the people, and they washed their garments, because he had said to the people, be ready for the third day, do not uh, go near a woman. On the morning of the third day, there were thunders and lightnings, and a thick cloud on the mountain, and a very loud trumpet blast, so that all the people in the camp trembled. Then Moses brought the people out of the camp to meet God, and they took their stand at the foot of the mountain. Mount Sinai was wrapped in smoke, because the Lord had descended on it. The smoke of it went up like a smoke from a kiln, and the whole mountain trembled greatly. And the sound of the trumpet grew louder and louder, and Moses spoke, and God answered him in the thunder. Can you imagine this scene? 
The Lord came down on Mount Sinai to the top of the mountain, and the Lord called Moses to the top of the mountain, and Moses went up. And then the Lord said to Moses, Go down and warn the people, lest they break through to the Lord to look, and many of them perish. And let the priests who come near to the Lord consecrate themselves, lest the Lord break out against them. Moses said to the Lord, The people can't come up to Mount Sinai. You yourself warned us, saying, uh, Set limits on the mountain and consecrate it. And the Lord said to him, Go down and warn them. Do not let the priests, let the people break through. So Moses went down to the people and told them, Live holy, for this is the one true God. The whole idea of this scene is for God to descend upon this mountain and for the people to say, This is God. He is God. I am not. He is holy, I am not. And what God is saying, consecrate yourselves, set yourselves apart to see and behold me. So he told them, wash your clothes, set yourself apart to focus intently on the presence of God. He tells those who are married, don't have sexual relations right now because right now your focus should be on the presence of God on the mountain. He said, why would he do that? Now, I don't know if you've ever had dinner with uh, the Queen of England. Anybody? I haven't, but I read an article about it, so it's the same. <laughs> I guess there are rules you have to follow. There are rules about not slurping your slurpee and all kinds of different things. Um, but she follows particular rules about dining. One thing in particular, so if she comes to a meal and she's got a person sitting on her left and a person sitting on her right, during the first course of the meal, she'll talk to the person on her right. During the first course, whatever that is, Right? During the second course of the meal, I guess meals have more than one course. During the second course of the meal, she will then talk to the person on her left. Well, it turns out one time this happened, uh, first course, so she's eating daintily, whatever she does, and talking to the person on her right, and the person on her left felt excluded. She's like, hey, what's up? I wanted to talk to you about something that's important to me, a cause in the city. And she's like, wait till the second course. That's when I talk to you. And for her, that seems overly formal, doesn't it? Uh, maybe that's much like your dinner table at home. I don't know. Uh, <laughs> Our dinner table is more like a prison riot. It's broken out. <laughs> it's probably not appropriate. But here God is saying, when you approach me, there's a particular way. Uh, I am going to come. I'm going to show up here. I'm going to make myself known to you. And you don't come in any old way. You will come to me in a manner particular to recognizing I am the God of the universe making myself known to you. Live holy because I am the one true God. Live holy for the one true God. Holiness is a manner of life that recognizes he is God, I am not, he is awesome, I should recognize that in my life. Holiness is recognizing God's otherness. God is not uh, an expression of myself onto the universe. God is holy other and he is making himself known to us through Christ and through his word. And holiness in my life says, I recognize, God, your highness and your otherness. You are not me, so my ways should be conformed to your ways. This is an intentional decision, an intentional focus to say, I want to be devoted to God. I want to honor God with my life merely because he is God. Now, many of us have not seen God descend on a mountain like Mount Sinai. It was so frightening, we're going to learn later. The people didn't even want to talk to God. They were so afraid. They said, Moses, you go for us. But what this is doing is saying, God is so God, and I am so not God. Holiness says, I want my life conformed to him versus the other way, which is, God, I want to figure out how to get you to fit into my life. Where does God fit into my life might be a question we would ask. Not out loud. But worship through holiness is saying, no, no, no. The question is not does God fit into my life. The question is how does my life fit into his? And Moses is going up on this mountain representing the people. He would go up on the mountain. You know how many times did he have to climb this mountain? Up and back and up. And he goes up on the mountain. God shows up. He has to go down and God says, make sure their, their clothes are clean. Make sure for the time being uh, the uh, married couples aren't uh, having sexual relations together. Make sure in this moment you're wholly focused and devoted on me. And Moses, make sure they understand the line not to cross. That they might properly recognize my otherness and my greatness. So Moses is going back and forth acting as a, a mediator. 
a representative of God to his people and a representative of the people to God. Moses is relying on God's word to communicate to the people, and the people are relying on Moses to communicate to them what God is up to. And Moses right now at this point is communicating to them, God is holy, you are not careful. Don't overstep. Look at verse 12 of Exodus 19. Verse 12 of Exodus 19. You shall set limits for the people all around. Take care. Don't go up the mountain or even touch it. Whoever touches it needs to be put to death. Whoever touches it has violated this. Why do they need a mediator? And the reason is this. God is God. He is holy. He is mighty. He is perfect. And what God is saying, so that you don't suffer wrath, you don't suffer judgment, Moses, you will act as the mediator here between your people and between me. Tell them not to approach too closely. If you approach too closely, you risk death. All right, let's go to the New Testament. I always like to refer to this where the New Testament talks about this. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. I think it might be up on the screen, or you can look in your copy of the Scripture. I'm going to read it. We're going to be reading a lot of Scripture today. That's not a terrible thing. Hebrews chapter 3, verses 1 through 6. Therefore, holy brothers, you who share in a heavenly calling, consider Jesus. Think about Jesus for a minute. Can we do that? You got a minute? Let's think about Jesus. He is the apostle, sent one, and high priest of our confession, who was faithful to him who appointed him, just as Moses was faithful in all God's house. So we're getting a comparison here between Jesus and Moses. Jesus was faithful, just like Moses was faithful. Verse 3, Jesus, though, has been counted worthy of more glory than Moses, as much more glory as the builder of a house has more honor than the house itself. Every house is built by someone, but the builder of all things is God. Moses was faithful in all God's house as a servant to testify to the things that were to be spoken of later. Christ is faithful over God's house as a son, and we are his house if indeed we hold fast to our confidence and our boasting in hope. So Moses acted as a mediator between God and his people on the mountain, and the author of Hebrews tells us Jesus is better. Because Moses came as a servant, Jesus comes as the son. So he's a better mediator for us. He makes a better connection between God and us than Moses could make. Jesus is better than Moses, just like the builder of a house is better than the house itself. Just like the son is worthy of more honor than the servant. Moses was faithful, but he could only be faithful as a servant. Jesus was faithful as the Son of God himself, building the bridge of a relationship between us and God himself. Let's finish this over in Hebrews 12, 18. You say, how many places am I going to have to turn to? Like a whole bunch more? So just get your page turning wrist loose. Here we go. Hebrews chapter 12, beginning in verse 18. You have not come to what may be touched, a blazing fire and darkness and gloom and tempest, the sound of a trumpet, and a voice whose words made the hearers beg that no further messages be spoken to them. What are they talking about? It's talking about Mount Sinai. It's talking about the scene where, where the mountain has become a volcano, and the author of Hebrews is saying, you don't come to a mountain like they do, where they're standing on a mountain, and if they get too close, they die. They could not endure the order that was given. If even a beast touches the mountain, it's going to be stoned. Indeed, so terrifying was the sight that Moses said, I tremble with fear. Verse 22, but you, I love buts, but you have come to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, innumerable angels in festal gathering. What's festal? Having a party. To the assembly of the firstborn who enrolled in heaven and to God, the judge of all, and to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, and to Jesus, the mediator of a new covenant, and to sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. A new covenant. 
We don't come to a mountain that if we touch it, we die. We come to Mount Zion where Christ is the mediator and he dies that we might live. Now that's better than Moses because now we no longer have to fear God on the mountain. We get to go up to God on the mountain because there is a party up there and it is an awesome party. The angels even dressed up. I mean, I thought angels generally were dressed up. I don't know what angels look like when they decide to really put on the good clothes. I mean, they're, they're getting ready to throw down. It's a party. Verse 25, see that you do not refuse him who is speaking. Okay, so a little bit of a warning coming here. We get to come to a better mountain whose mediator is not Moses where we fear death. We come to a mountain of the presence of God where Jesus pays the price for our unrighteousness. By faith, we get to have full access to God and join in in the party. This is a better covenant. This is the new covenant. And this is the warning. See that you do not refuse him who is speaking. If they did not escape when they refused him who warned on earth, much less will we escape if we reject him who warns from heaven. At that time, his voice shook the earth. But now he has promised, yet once more I will shake not only the earth, but also the heavens. This phrase, yet once more, indicates the removal of all things that are shaken in order that the things that cannot be shaken will remain. Therefore, let us be grateful for receiving a kingdom that cannot be shaken and let us offer to God acceptable worship with reverence and awe for God is a consuming fire. He's saying here, God by mediation of Christ has made us holy that we can boldly run up the mountain and hang out with God and he's saying, let's make sure we worship God. Live holy for the one true God who has given us a better mediator, a better covenant where we can freely run up the mountain and say, God, what's up? And he is saying, let's not refuse him who would speak. He has called us into holiness by Christ and to worship him by living holy in Christ. We have a better mediator, a better covenant, a better word, a better kingdom. We have all of God through him that is Christ, just by a matter of faith. Live holy for the one true God. All right, we were talking about the queen earlier and knowing the right etiquette. Obviously, the guy who was sitting to the queen's left didn't know the proper etiquette, right? It's like he didn't know the rules. Somebody forgot to give him the pamphlet, how to eat with the queen. Probably is more like a book. He said, okay, I get it. God is holy, and he wants me to be holy, and it turns out I'm lame at that. So therefore, I put faith in Christ, so I get to be made holy. That's awesome. But now that I've been made holy, how then do I worship God, having been made holy? How do I worship him? in a way that's consistent with who he is. I'm glad you asked. Live holy by the, covenant, the words of God himself. Live holy by these words. Look at Exodus chapter 20. Jeff read it, so we probably aren't going to read it all again. Exodus chapter 20. Have you ever heard this phrase, better late than never? Better late than never? Some of you are like, oh yeah. That's my life verse. <laughs> Others of you, the real punctual ones, are like, I don't like that at all. So George Bernard Shaw, he was a playwright. He had this phrase on his desk or behind his desk somewhere. It said, better never than late. That, and you immediately know something about this playwright. He, did you think he liked punctuality? Yeah, so if you're going to show up late to his office, don't bother. He, he's already moved on. And so we learn something about him by the words he has used. We can discern his nature by the little sign hanging uh, over uh, his door. And here we have in Exodus chapter 20, the words of God saying, here, let me tell you a little bit of what I'm like. God spoke these words and he said, I am your God. You will have no other gods before me. You will put nothing else in front of me. You will have nothing in your life that's a higher priority than me in your life. What we learn from the Ten Commandments plus all of the law plus all of the scripture is not merely commands that God wants us to follow, although that's important. What we learn most profoundly is what is God like? What is his nature? What, he, what is he like? And he says this, 
you will have no other God before me. Now, see, you and I, in our relationships with people, go, well, that seems kind of petty. That, that seems a little petty. If your good friend came to you and said, hey, do you think we're good friends? Yeah, we're pretty good friends. We hang out a little bit, yeah. You know what? I want you to have no other friends before me. Say, whoa, dude, that's a little codependent, man. Um, I think we're, we're going to simmer down on the friendship thing. We're going to go to acquaintance. You will have no other acquaintance before me. See, immediately, it's like this is a little bit, uh, like a little intense. Okay, but the difference is God gets to do it because he's God. When we take offense at God saying to us, the most important thing in your life is me, when we're offended by that, it's because we have failed to understand what he's like. He is God. And this isn't so much as a command, it's a privilege. He's saying, I want you to put me at the highest point of your priorities in your life. Most of the Ten Commandments here are an expression of essentially two of the commandments. You will have no other God before me, and you will not make for yourself an idol. I ought to be most important, and you will worship nothing else besides me. And most of the other commandments sort of flow out of that. Don't envy your neighbor's house, his F-150, his wife, his fishing boat. I know it's not in there, but it, it would be today. I mean, I've I got to be honest, I've never, like I stumble in a lot of sins, but I've never envied my neighbor's ox. Like, not once. It's one of those, I just think the Lord, he delivered me from that early on. But all the, you shall not take the Lord your name, your, uh, take the name of the Lord your God in vain. Because how could I vainly, how could I cast aside the name of God if I actually was esteeming him as the God of the universe? And so the commands here are saying, do you recognize that God is who he says he is? And do you recognize his nature is a particular way? He is God uh, that is made known through the commandments. And we need to know the God who has made himself known. Not create another God who has commandments we're more into. So the words are not merely commands, but rather they are telling us what God is, what God is like. Why would he tell us not to envy our neighbor's house and our neighbor's uh, F-150 and our neighbor's relationship with his wife? Why would he tell us we don't need to do that? Well, because we don't need those things if we recognize we have the God of the universe. If I have all of God as in relationship, why in the world would I need your lousy house? See, these things are all connected. God is saying, when you have encountered me in relationship, you don't need all these other things that you would rather have besides me. And when we seek all of these other things that aren't God, the, the main issue is not merely sin, although it is that. The main thing is we have decided something else is better than God himself. We have decided we know what we need best, and God doesn't know. So we live holy by these words of God. Another way of saying this, we don't get to decide what it means to live holy. Well, I can live holy by having a relationship on the side, because I really have dedicated both my wife and my mistress to the Lord. No, you're wrong and you're sinning. You can't, uh, uh, you can't sanctify something that is not the Lord's way. These words tell us what God is like. Let's turn over to Romans chapter 3. Romans chapter 3. Here's what the book of Romans says about the law as is summarized in the Ten Commandments. I'm going to read Romans, excuse me, 19 and 20. 20 is up on the screen. Now we know that whatever the law says, it speaks to those who are under the law, so that every mouth may be stopped and the whole world may be held accountable to God. For by the works of the law, no human being will be justified in his sight. Since through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So the law here, we see the Ten Commandments. The law here tells us what God is like. Through the law comes the knowledge of sin. So I know, here's what God is like. Here's how a person lives if they want to live consistent with God's nature. And when I don't do these things, when I'm envious, when I use the Lord's name in vain, uh, when I worship something other than God, when I don't keep God as the chief priority of my life, then what I realize then through the law is I'm a sinner. 
Okay, that's helpful, I guess, except that it doesn't make me righteous, does it? So the law is the thermometer. The law gets stuck into my heart as a thermometer, and the reading comes out what? Dirty, rotten sinner. Now, if you went to the doctor and you, they took a test, and they say, you know what? You've got a, a fever, and uh, the thermometer tells me that. So what I want you to do is keep this thermometer in your mouth. Would, that, would you find that helpful? You say, well, hey, doctor, you know, that's going to that's do a great job of reminding me that I have a fever. But is there any way we could maybe address the fever? Maybe there's an underlying infection. Maybe I'm dying. Is there, say, you know what? Well, I think it really is more important that we just keep a real close tab on how close you are to death. So just before you die, if you could make sure you're taking a good journal entry of each temperature. No, thank you. And this is the function of the law for us. The law is intended to be a barometer of the conditioner of our heart. Do this, do this, do this. And we read through the law. Don't envy. That's nice. Thank you for that. Worship God and God alone. Okay, yeah, I'm really good at that on Sundays for about 20 minutes. Keep God as the most important thing in your life. I'm really good at that when I'm doing my devotions three times a week. All I'm discovering by the law is I don't measure up very well. The law tells us God's nature. It tells us our condition. It tells us we're not like God. And remember what it said up back in Exodus 19. It said, listen, if you'll just obey me, you will be my people. So God says, just obey me, and you can be my people for all of time. Then he gives them a thermometer and says, oh, by the way, check up on see how you're doing with this law thing. And how does that work out? And yet, how many of us as, as Christians, we determine how good we're doing for the Lord by how obedient we're being? Or, now I know none of us would ever do this, how many of us determine how well somebody else is doing by applying, applying to the law to their heart? Or somebody comes to us with their struggle in their Christian life and we say, you know what you need? You really need a good dose of obedience. So I'm going to stick some law in your heart and see if that'll fix it. I'm going to give you 10 rules to follow. The issue is not why not obey. The issue is this when we read the, the law. We read the law and we say, the issue isn't so much that uh, I know I ought to obey it. The issue is this, why didn't I obey it naturally without having to be told? Have you ever asked that question? Why do you have to be told to do what God wants you to do? Because again, the reason I'm saying all this is because some of us think we're doing pretty good. You know, I, all of my sins are just the PG ones. Like, I don't do anything that's going to end up in the paper if I don't get caught anyway. And so we're convinced we're doing okay. We put, a, we put the law thermometer in our mouth, and it comes out 99.9, .9 and we say, you know, I'm pretty good. Like, no, that's a little bit of a fever. No, it's not 104 like the guy next to me. I mean, look at that guy. Or how do we normally do it? Well, at least I'm not Hitler. Like, that's your justification. Good into heaven because you're not Hitler. Okay, I think there's a little different standard than that. So we lower, okay, you're right, you're right. We need higher standards. At least I've never murdered anybody. I don't even, should I take a poll? Like, who's not murdered anybody? I, I think we could safely say, I don't even want to know, okay, you know, honestly. <laughs> so I feel like we'd have to have names up. So the issue is, what is wrong with my heart that I am so far from God I didn't even know his ways? That I read the Ten Commandments, I say, why did I have to be told this? Shouldn't this have just flown from my heart because I'm created in God's image? Shouldn't this just have been a part of the fabric of who I am? Don't use the Lord's name in vain. Don't envy other people's stuff because God is better than that. Shouldn't that have just been a part of who I am? Well, of course it should have been. We screwed it all up. And because of that, God comes to us with his truth. Let me explain to you what you're not so that you will come to me and receive a new and better covenant. One last issue on this. James chapter 2, and then we're gonna, we'll wrap it up. Say, well, gee, I hope he gets positive for the end. Well, I can't promise you anything. James chapter 2. This is for those of us who are pretty good at following the rules. If you really fulfill the royal law of Scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself. You're doing well. Good for you. Pat yourself on the back. But if you show partiality, that's favoritism, looking down on some, on others. You look down on other people who are poor, people who are a different race than you, people who live on the other side of the tracks. 
you show partiality, you're committing a sin, and you are convicted by the law as a transgressor. Whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point to become guilty of all of it. He who said, do not commit adultery, also said, don't murder. If you do not commit adultery but you do murder, you've become a transgressor of the whole law. Live holy by these words. Follow the whole law. Some of you who are married have a law in your marriage. You have things delineated out. People do different things in marriage. Some people mow, not me today. <clears throat> Let's say, for example, you as the husband, it's your job to do the dishes. You do the dishes every night. Scrub, do it, fill the dishwasher the appropriate way. You, you, do, you follow the rules. You are a good dishwasher. So, therefore, uh, you have adultery on the side. Just a mistress. And somebody says, you know, I don't think it's appropriate for you to be having an affair. And you say, well, listen, you know what? There's laws in my marriage. I think there's two laws. Don't have an affair and do the dishes. I think one out of two isn't bad. Like, I think I'm doing okay. Like, I even go above and beyond, and I make sure to get a card filled out for birthdays and anniversaries, too. So I actually think I'm doing better than 50%, so that's pretty good. Who's okay with this in their marriage? Don't raise your hand, because some of you are going to be awkward. See, this makes perfect sense. No, that doesn't make any sense. You don't get to have, pick the parts you can do and then over here do whatever you want. And, and God is saying the same way. You can't say, well, I'm really good at not using the Lord's name in vain. I'm really lousy at not envying. But, you know, one out of two isn't bad. You know, I do it. Some things I'm better at than others. And God says, I realize that. So you're condemned. Because you've misunderstood the nature of God himself. To love God is to have his nature rule the entirety of our heart. To love God is to have God's sovereign, I'm in charge of everything, rule every square inch of our person. That his ways might permeate to the core of my being. That I not only merely do everything he says to do, I do everything he says to do when he says to do it. I do everything when he says to do it with a good attitude. Who's good at this? Then we need a really, really good mediator. We need somebody who can go to God on our behalf and say, I did it for him. I did it for him. Turn to Matthew chapter 5, 17 through 20. Matthew chapter 5. Jesus says this, do not think I have come to abolish the law. Did Jesus come to get rid of the law? No way. The law demonstrates who God is. The law demonstrates his nature, his person. I have not come to abolish them, but to what? Fulfill them. Good news. This is incredible. Okay, don't miss that little phrase. I have not come to abolish them. I have come to fulfill them. Truly I say to you, until heaven and earth pass away, not one iota, not a dot will pass from the law until it is accomplished. Therefore, whoever relaxes one of the least of these commandments and teaches others to do the same will be called least in the kingdom of heaven. Whoever does them and teaches them will be called great in the kingdom of heaven. For I tell you, unless your righteousness exceeds the scribes and Pharisees, you will never enter the kingdom of heaven. How righteous were the scribes and Pharisees? Oh, they're pretty good. How is your righteousness going to exceed the righteousness of the best Christians you've ever met? How is that even possible? Any ideas? What if somebody else gave you his? What if Jesus came, and this isn't a what if, this is an is, he comes and he lives his life perfectly and fulfills every segment of the law. Not only that, he then dies on the cross because you didn't obey the law, rises from the dead. When we put our faith in him, all of our disobedience has gone unto him. All of his complete obedience to the law is given to us. So then you are seen in Christ as what? More righteous than the scribes and Pharisees. They couldn't follow them all. More righteous than anyone. More righteous, in fact, as righteous as Christ himself. So then Satan comes up to you this week and he says, boy, uh, I've seen some bad thoughts in my day. Wow, that was a homer. I didn't even tempt you, and you came up with that one. And some of you are going, how did you know? 
I get a printout. Heaven over No, I don't. It's weird. Sorry I said that. It's ridiculous. I know this is going to sound weird. So how righteous are you? As righteous as Christ. His righteousness is given to me. My identity in Christ is not lawbreaker. My identity in Christ is righteous because he fulfilled the law. Like he said on the cross, it's nearly finished. Okay, good. You're, you're paying attention, like two of you. It is finished. The law is fulfilled. He has died to the law. The law no longer applies to us. So therefore, we receive his righteousness by faith. We live holy because of a better promise. We live holy for this one true God. And this guy's amazing, isn't he? He died for us that the law might be fulfilled. And we live holy knowing what his nature is like. In order for us to live holy, we must be made holy, and we are made holy in Christ when we trust in him. We no longer have to be good to become good. We get to be good because we are good. Romans 12, 1 and 2, last verse I'm going to reference. It's going to be up on the screen. Romans 12, 1 and 2 says this. I appeal, therefore, brothers... By the mercies of God, I appeal to you because of this great merciful God whose son came and fulfilled the Ten Commandments on the cross. I appeal to you because of his mercy to present your bodies as living sacrifices, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual act of worship. So why do we live holy? Why do we seek to eradicate envy and bitterness and uh, resentment from our life? Why do we seek to not take the Lord's name in vain? Why do we seek to have God as the highest priority in our life as an expression of worship? God, you died for me? God, you gave me your righteousness? Then let my heart be drawn to you and let me worship you by living consistent with your ways. Let me say no to my flesh and say yes to the Spirit because you died for me. It's an expression of gratitude, an expression of worship. We are holy, so therefore we live holy as a, an act of gratitude and thanks to God who made us holy. The pressure is off. We don't have to measure up. We already do. We get to worship God just because we love him that much. We get to think in the freedom of God's holiness, what is God like? What is he into? What can I do in my life that would bring him delight as I live according to his ways. Live holy by the words of God. Finally, we can be changed over time to be more and more like Christ as we worship him. The goal here is to be like Jesus, that our lives are more and more consistent with the ways of Christ, not to earn our way to heaven, but rather because Christ already made us holy. All right, live holy because of this promise. Do we have a good promise? Did I mention that? Yeah, it's pretty good. Trust him and we're made righteous. Live holy because he is the one true God. We don't take this lightly. God is not our teddy bear. God is God. We are not, and our lives ought to reflect the fact that he is the one true God, and we worship him. And we ought to live our lives holy in the righteousness Christ gives us in the way his word communicates to us, saying no to sin and saying yes to God.